Well, I was 12 years old at the time, but it was a night that I will not forget. My family had attended a small town church in Nebraska for several years, but this evening that started off pretty well as an evening church service um, quickly turned into a disaster. We had attended this church for a while, and and this night just tanked really quick. In small towns like I grew up in, there's really no one who's a stranger. Most everyone knows something of everybody. And so when a family who was known to have a bad reputation began to attend our church, they were received with a kind of a mixed reception. Some in our church were glad that they were coming. They wanted to learn about Jesus. Others in our church who were aware of their scandalous history uh, treated them with suspicion and even at times scorn. Well, after a while, the father of this family had enough. And his frustration of being mistreated reached a boiling point this evening at our church service. In the middle of the church service, I'll never forget it, he stands up and he starts yelling. And while he's yelling, a church leader walks from his seat in the crowd and he walks up to the the platform where the pastor was and he began to call out to everyone in the church to join him on the platform if you weren't going to stand for this. Soon enough, some went forward on the platform, and you could see a a visible dividing line in the church beginning to form. Others wept out loud. Others sat in their pew just shocked, frozen, that they were seeing a shouting match happen in the middle of a church service. It was terrible, to say the least. But as I reflect on it today, I hate the effect that it must have had on the family who was visiting our church, trying to understand who Jesus is. I imagine they left that night thinking, if this is what God is like, I don't want anything to do with him. Why would God let something like this happen? In a church. Where where is God in something like this? Our faith can be tested by what happens in a church sometimes. And our faith can be tested by seeing what happens in the world we live. For many, 2020 has left us feeling like a boxer in a ring pinned against the ropes getting pummeled by a right hook then a left hook. One punch after another until our knees are weak and we feel woozy about to fall over. We turn on the news and each day is filled with headlines about suffering and corruption and sickness and injustice and violence. And we ask, where is God in this? Why, God? How long? For those who have accepted the idea that God exists, the truth that God exists, some will be tempted with one or of two conclusions when they're confronted with evil like that. Either God is good, but he's powerless, or God's powerful, but he's not good. Both those are false conclusions, but we're often tempted with those conclusions. Either way, we're left asking, how can I trust God 
when there is evil in this world? How can we trust God when the world's falling apart and the one who could fix it seems to us to be indifferent? You ever asked that question? You ever felt that way when you look at the evil in the world? Well, if so, you find yourself in good company today in the pages of Scripture with an Old Testament prophet that we have a chance to listen to today in the next three weeks, Lord willing. So please turn with me to the Old Testament prophet, the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk. Now, if you're thinking Habakkuk what, right? Where is that at in the Bible? Just start in the New Testament book of Matthew, the, the first, the first uh, book of the New Testament, and just go back a little bit. It's right, it's right before, a few books before Matthew. So we'll start in Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk 1, verse 1. Let me encourage you to keep your Bible open in our time together in God's Word. The prophet begins this way in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. We'll stop there for a minute. The book of Habakkuk is one of 12 minor prophets in the books of the Bible. And by minor, that just refers to the, the length of the book, not its importance. So you have minor prophets like like Habakkuk, and you have major prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah, and they're just major because they're longer, right? So we're not told a lot about Habakkuk and who he is, but verse 1 states that the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. So we know he's a prophet, and he received an oracle, a word from the Lord. And the job description of an Old Testament prophet is to be the mouthpiece for God. God gives an oracle, a word of the prophet to speak, and that's their job, is to speak on behalf of God. And if you read the whole book of Habakkuk, there's only three chapters. Based on the details of the book, it's clear that Habakkuk is ministering in Judah, the southern tribe of, of, of Israel. He's ministering in Judah in probably the late 7th century B.C., probably sometime between 610 and 605. And he's ministering to Judah as Babylon is coming on the scene, kind of pushing Assyria out as the next world power. Now, at the time for Judah, Josiah was just coming off the scene. Josiah was a really good king in Judah, but he had just died. And when he died, his sons that took his throne, well, they weren't good. They were evil. And they led the nation into sin and idolatry. You can read about it in 2 Kings 22, 23, and 24. And so, though God sent prophets like Habakkuk to plead with his people to call them back as an act of mercy, God's people refused to listen. And so by the time that Habakkuk comes on the scene to be a prophet to God's people, things had gotten really bad. They had deteriorated, uh, and it's really bad. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for oracle can be translated as burden, the burden that Habakkuk the prophet Saw. And that's actually pretty accurate because the message of, that, that God is giving to Habakkuk is a message of judgment and discipline. It's a heavy burden for him to carry. And yet here's the thing. If you're familiar with Habakkuk, by the time we get to chapter 3, the end of the book, you and I will find Habakkuk rejoicing in God. 
rejoicing in God. Well, how does he get from receiving this burden, being overwhelmed, to actually rejoicing in God? How can Habakkuk trust God? That's the question that we want to ask this morning. How can we? How can we trust God when it seems like the world's falling apart around us? For those of you who are taking notes, point number one is this. Bring your concerns to God. Point number one, bring your concerns to God. And we're going to see this in verse 2 of our text. Again, Habakkuk has a heavy burden that left him distressed and weary. But instead of throwing in the towel, he brings his concern to God in prayer. Look at verse 2. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. That's his prayer. O Lord, how long shall I cry? Will you not hear? How long will I cry for violence and you will not save? Let me just draw up three observations from Habakkuk's prayer for our, our, our our own prayer life. First of all, notice how his prayer is honest. He comes to God with honest questions. In grief, he comes to God asking, how long? In his sorrow, he comes to God asking, where are you? Why are you letting this happen? This is not a cleaned up version of Habakkuk. He just, he is, he's, he's laying out his heart before the Lord. In fact, it's gotten to the point where the prophet wants to scream. You ever feel that way? <laughs> In fact, the, the, the Hebrew word for crying out to you is, it can be translated as shouting or screaming. He's, he's, he's not saying, hello, Father. Lord, I have a couple things I want to talk to you. He's, Lord, where are you? How long? And notice, God does not rebuke the prophet for his questions. He welcomes it. Friends, God invites us to pour out our hearts to him in prayer. And it's one of the means that God gives us to trust him in hard times. Habakkuk does not accuse God of wrong, but in bringing his honest, heartfelt request to God, he models how honest prayer moves us closer to trusting God. Second observation, notice how his prayer is persistent. It's persistent. We know this because he asks the question, how long? How long shall I cry for help? So the fact that he's asking how long is a reflection of the fact that this is not the first time he's, got, he's, he's prayed to God about this issue. Friends, is there something or someone that you've been praying about for a long time that you find yourself still waiting on, still praying, still asking God for? Don't give up. Keep praying. Be persistent in your prayer. In the New Testament, after some of the people who were following Jesus were offended by what Jesus taught in John 6, and they walked away from Jesus, he then turns to his other disciples and says, do you want to leave me too? You know what Peter said? Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. He, in other words, he's saying, your plan A and I have no plan B. You're the one who's got it. We can't go anywhere else. And persistent prayer, persistent prayer reflects this conviction that God is our plan A and we have no plan B. And so if we got to wait, we just keep waiting and we keep praying because we've got no other place to go. He's the one who has eternal life. Friends, if you're tempted to give up praying, 
because you're discouraged by how long you have to pray for something, let me encourage you this afternoon to read Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Jesus in Luke 18, 1 through 8, tells a parable that reflects in the heart of a loving father that encourages us to keep praying and not lose heart. So it's an honest prayer, it's persistent prayer. Third observation, it's urgent prayer. Habakkuk's prayer is urgent prayer. For Habakkuk, prayer is not optional. He's desperate, and he cries to God for help. Being weak and feeling desperate is not fun. It doesn't feel good. But being weak, being desperate does wake us up to the reality of our need for God. Christian, when you look back on the past year, 2020, would you say that you've grown closer to God? I hope so. Friends, don't don't despise the circumstances, however painful they may be. Don't despise the circumstances that our sovereign God brings into our life that help us to lean into God, that make us pray and fellowship with him because that fellowship with him is worth it. 2021 is a, is a brand new year and it's gonna bring its own sorrows. It's gonna bring its own joys. Let me invite you, let me encourage you, let me, let me call on you, First Baptist, let me call on us to pray. Pray with us on Sunday mornings. When Pastor Tyrone is praying, he's not just entertaining us. He's leading us in prayer. Join us for our prayer meetings on the first and third Wednesday evenings uh, on Zoom. Use the prayer guide that we put in the bulletin to pray privately throughout the week or with your family. Use your church directory as a prayer tool throughout the week. Oh, may we as a church in this coming year be marked by honest, persistent, and urgent prayers. Habakkuk, as he fights to trust God, brings his concern to God in prayer. But what is it that he's concerned about? What is it exactly that is distressing the prophet? Well, let's look carefully at Habakkuk's example so that, number two, we can be concerned about the right thing. That's point number two. Be concerned about the right thing. So bring your concerns to God, point one. Point number two, be concerned about the right thing. And we're going to see this in verses three and four of the text. Look at verse three with me. Chapter one, verse three. Habakkuk continues, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. All right. What is it that Habakkuk is alarmed about? What is he concerned about? Well, we don't have to guess. In verse 3, he uses six different words to tell us what he's concerned about. Iniquity. Wrong destruction, violence, strife, and contention. Not a good scene, right? So what causes all these things? What causes the mess? What's the reason for the arguments and the violence and the strife and the destruction? Well, the reason or the cause is found in verse 4. The wicked surround 
the righteous. The wicked surround the righteous. Now, this is important, church. When we hear the word wicked, we tend to think of really bad people. You know, the, the, the really bad people who hang out in dark alleys and just want to see the world burn. But that's not always the case. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke explains the Hebrew term for wicked. That he, he refers to it as the term that refers to people who ad, advantage themselves by disadvantaging others. The wicked are those who advantage themselves by disadvantaging others. That changes it, doesn't it? And the wicked, in other words, are selfish. They're self-centered. If something helps them get ahead, they don't care that it hurts others. That's just the cost of doing business. In contrast, the Hebrew term for righteous refers to people who disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. A righteous person is someone who is willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. In other words, the righteous are not marked by self-centeredness, but rather selflessness. They're marked by a concern, a care, and a love for the people that are around them. Another important term that the prophet mentions twice in verse 4 is that term, Justice. Justice is a very complex word, but it can be defined as this way. Justice can be defined as treating everyone equitably, both in, po- in the positive sense of protection or reward or in the negative sense of punishment. Justice says this is right and this is wrong according to the standard of God's word, God's law. And since every human being is created in the image of God, justice treats everyone with fairness and equity and without partiality. Old or young, rich or poor, white or black, male or female, treats everyone with equity because they're made in the image of God. So with that in mind, kind of wrapping our minds around the idea of wicked and righteous and justice, if you had a choice to live in a city that's filled with the wicked, where everybody's for themselves, looking out for themselves, or you had a choice to live in a city that's filled with the righteous, where everyone's looking out for the good of others, where would you rather live? Like us, Habakkuk longed for a city filled with the righteous. But instead... Verse 4, he looks around and he sees the wicked surround or outnumber the righteous. And because the wicked surround the righteous, Habakkuk says, justice never goes forth. Or if it does go forth, it goes forth perverted, it's twisted. For the wicked, verse 4, the law is paralyzed. They, they have God's law, but they just ignore it. They live by their own rules. The law of the wicked is very simple. If it advantages them, then it's right. 
Yes, there's traffic laws, but if cutting in front of you in the, in the traffic line gets me to my destination faster, I don't care that it makes other people late. It disadvantages them. Yes, there are marriage vows, but if breaking those promises makes me happy, it doesn't matter how other people are affected. That's how the wicked live. They're willing to disadvantage others for their own advantage. Now, what happens when you fill a room with people who are only looking out for themselves and each person is living by their own set of rules? What happens? Iniquity, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, and contention. Exactly the vision that that Habakkuk sees when he looks up and looks around. And here's the thing. What Habakkuk saw was not just in his day. The, The violence that Habakkuk saw is in our world today. We live with the threat of the violence of war, violence in the streets, violence in schools. There's violence in the home, husbands against wives, parents against children, both physically and verbally. There's road rage. There's lawsuits about anything you can think of. There's conflict. There's, there's strife. There's, there's, there's violence against people due to racism. There's violence against, there's, there's violence against children in the womb. We live in a day when each year over 73 million children are killed in the womb due to abortion. That's 138 children every second of the day. And when we see violence and strife and contention, when we see evil like this in the world around us, it moves us to ask, how long, Lord? God, why do you make us see this evil? It makes me want to vomit. Where are you? Why? And yet, church, as awful as what we see happening in the world around us is, as real and as awful and as nauseating as it is, Habakkuk's focus is not the evil that's happening out there in the world. You got to catch this. Habakkuk's focus, his alarm, is about the sin and the violence and the strife in God's house, among God's people. He's looking at Judah. He's looking at the people of God, and this is what he sees. And so as we try to make sense of Habakkuk and and rightly interpret Habakkuk, when when we move from Habakkuk's world to our world, the primary application is not the United States. The primary application is, it has to do with the church. And not just First Baptist, but the church around the world. The church that represents the people of God today. This is what John Calvin wrote. He said, this passage teaches us that all who serve and love God ought, according to the prophet's example, burn with holy anger whenever they see wickedness reigning without restraint in the church. That should concern us. It should create a holy indignation in our hearts. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, the first petition is this. 
hallowed be your name. In other words, Lord, I pray that your name would be honored, loved, treasured, valued, respected. That's Habakkuk's concern. It's not a personal affront. It's not that he had his feelings hurt. Habakkuk's concern is the glory of God. Because like Israel, the church is called to be distinct. We as the people of God are called to be set apart from the world around us. And as we trust God and obey his word together, when in love as the people of God, we become willing to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others, we show the world a different way to live. We show the world that it doesn't have to be this way. There's there's a better way to live that God has enabled for us in Christ. So church, let me ask you, what concerns you? What distresses you? What keeps you up at night? Is it for God's name to be honored, loved, treasured, worshipped? Or is it for something else? When I ask my own self that question, I have to admit that sadly there are times that the honor of God's name is not my chief concern. I confess there are times that the things that keep me up at night are issues that are selfish, self-centered, no different than the world. My comfort, my name, my desire. And friends, this is dangerous because the world operates that way. When, when this self-centeredness creeps into the life of the Christian or the church, it's dangerous because the, world, the whole world system that's opposed to God operates by this self-centeredness. It actually encourages and celebrates this me-first value system. We can't rely on the world to, to discourage us from this. It actually encourages us. And so left unchecked, we can begin to look like the world The church can begin to look like the world, and sometimes without us even being aware that it's happening. Theologian David Wells puts it this way. He says, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal, and righteousness look strange. That's a good definition of worldliness. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal, and righteousness look strange. And friends, this is why Habakkuk is a good example for us, and it's an important example for us. Because as we look at Habakkuk, it serves as a mirror that we can look into and ask ourselves, okay, am I alarmed? Am I concerned with the right thing? Do my concerns reflect that of a righteous person like Habakkuk? Or Have I, have we become so much like the world that sin starts to look normal and we're no longer alarmed by it? We're no longer concerned about it anymore. It doesn't bother me anymore. Now listen, I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to be concerned about our job or our health or our kids or our nation or the politics in our country. We should be concerned about those things. But the danger is that when those issues come into a sinful heart, a sinful heart can 
turn a good thing into an ultimate thing. And that's where we fall into error. When someone or something or some idea becomes something that we must have, I can't live without it, keeps me up at night. When this idea or issue becomes something that we trust, well, it takes a position in our hearts that is reserved for God alone. It becomes a form of idolatry that we may not even know exists in our hearts, a blind spot that we don't even see. And this idolatry can take a number of forms, right? Materialism, that's a, that's a, that's a dangerous one. Loving money more than God. Nationalism, where devotion to country, a healthy patriotism, turns into something that rivals our devotion to God. Hedonism, when pleasure, a good gift from God, becomes God itself. Our stomach becomes our God. Or workism, when our jobs and our labors and success become our identity. Listen, we could keep going on and on. Any good gift that God has put into our life can turn into an ultimate thing that we worship if we're not careful. But without spiritual x-ray goggles that help us to see what's going on in your heart and my heart, idolatry can be a hard thing to identify. I don't know what's going on in your heart. It's hard sometimes to know what's even going on in my own heart. So what do we do? If there's this this spiritual carbon monoxide flowing around that could kill us and we don't know it, what do we do? How do we identify our blind spots? I think we would have went back to the day when Habakkuk was, 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 was prophesying. I think that Israel would have thought they were good. They were good with God. We got the temple. <laughs> and they were, they were oblivious to this. That's why Habakkuk came. So how can we grow in our concern for God's glory and the good of others? Let me just offer three brief applications, three things that I think might be helpful for us to kind of sniff out these these idols that are hard to identify sometimes. Number one, pursue godly friendships. Pursue godly friendships. Friends that know something about what's going on in your heart and you them. This is what Hebrews 3.13 says. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. So you see this exhortation going on between people. Why? Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the ways that we avoid the deceit of sin and our hearts becoming hardened is by this consistent exhortation, a warning and encouragement that comes between godly friends. As challenging as it is to relate to people who are different than us, I think the differences in, 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 in this church actually helps us in a really good way. It helps to expose sin and idolatry that we might otherwise overlook. If everyone in this church came from similar backgrounds or thought exactly the same way. Sometimes our differences and different ways of thinking about, about disputable matters actually helps expose that idolatry. So let's invest in those relationships. Let's, let's, let's live together as a church family. And friends, as a reminder, godly friendship doesn't just happen. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. It takes God's help. So one, one good resolution, if you're a person who makes resolutions or not, doesn't matter. Make it a goal for 2021 to strengthen the relationships that you already have in this church. Invest in them. Deepen them. Pray for them. And then also expand those friendships. 
reach out to somebody in the church that you don't really know yet. Reach out to folks that are different than you, and this year, seek to really get to know a couple of those folks that that are different than you, you you don't know yet. God will use it, I think. So pursue godly friendship. Second application, pay careful attention to God's word. Pay attention to God's word. Hebrews 2, 1 says this, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. God's, we, as the psalmist says, I have hidden God's word in my heart that I may not sin against you. God's word is like a lamp that exposes what's going on in our heart and then leads us down the right path. Now listen, most of us don't skip a meal during the day unless we mean to. I know I don't, right? Friends, what is your plan? Don't go about this haphazardly. You know that. If you, go, if you just kind of wing it, it ain't going to happen. What is your plan? In 2021, to every day feast on God's word. What is your plan? To, to feast on God's word, to guide you, to nourish your soul, to strengthen your relationship with God. Listen, if you're like, well, I don't know, I, don't, I want a plan, I don't know where to start. Check out the sermon discussion guide tomorrow. We send out a, a sermon discussion guide to continue the conversation throughout the week. Check that sermon discussion guide tomorrow, either in, either in your email or on the website, and we'll send a list of Bible reading plans that you can look at. Get a plan. Number three, so pursue godly friendships, pay careful attention to God's word. Third application, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. Church, we are called to pray constantly, without ceasing. And from time to time, we are to occasionally abstain from food in order to intensify our focus as we come to God in prayer about important things. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, examine yourselves. So here's what I want us to do. This Wednesday, we have our church-wide prayer meeting. What we want to invite you as a church to do is join us in skipping breakfast and lunch this Wednesday. Two meals, breakfast and lunch on Wednesday for the purpose of prayer for seeking God's guidance and asking him to search our hearts, to see if there's any harmful way in us, to, to reveal to us through his word and through, these fel- through our fellowship that if there's blind spots that we're missing, that God would show us that and that we would repent, that we would turn away from those blind spots. We need God to do this. I, we can't, I, I can't point that out. I don't know your heart, but God does, and he loves us. And I don't know my heart uh, clearly, but, but he, he, we, he, he loves us, and he will... He will guide us down that. So what we're going to do is tomorrow, again, with the sermon discussion guide, we're going to send out uh, a detailed kind of instruction guide for those who want to join us in fasting on Wednesday. Check out the sermon discussion guide. We'll give those instructions and and, and specific things to pray through on Wednesday. Or else you can check the website again uh, tomorrow. Friends, having God's honor as our chief concern helps us to trust God by putting things in their proper perspective. The whole world can fall apart, but God's glory is a sure thing, and that helps us to trust him. And I think what we see is Habakkuk wrestling. He's not, he's not there yet, but he's, this is part of the process. At the end of verse 4, Habakkuk is still wondering, okay, I, I, why, God, how long? What are you going to do? Are you going to do anything? 
And God in his mercy says, I am. I am working. But his plan that he's going to reveal to Habakkuk is not the plan that the prophet expected. And that brings us to our last point this morning. Point number three. See the plan that God has revealed. See the plan that God has revealed. That's point number three, verses five through 11 in our text. So let's look again at verse, verses five through 11, God's word. And just a note here, Habakkuk is speaking in verses one through four. In verse five, God is the one who's speaking. This is his response. Look among the nations and see Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Now again, church, up to this point, Habakkuk's been asking, God, are you going to do anything? Are you going to do something about this evil? And God answers, I am. And his answer's in verse 5. Look, Habakkuk, look, people of Judah, look, among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And what is this unbelievable plan that God is doing? Verse 6 I am raising up the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians. Friends, one of the things that we learn about God in verse 5 and 6 is this God is not indifferent to evil. Habakkuk's wondering, are you going to do something? And because God is not indifferent to evil, out of his character, out of his goodness, out of his holiness, he reminds Habakkuk, I'm not indifferent. I'm going to do something. I am doing something. He will not stand by and do nothing. All evil will be judged by God. And church, because we know this is true about God, God's people can trust him as they wait for justice. Friends, some of you have been wronged in your life. You have been sinned against. You have been harmed. But know this, God sees it. And God is at work. You may have to wait for it, but he's at work. And, and there may be days when it seems like the wrongdoer or the bully got away with it. But Habakkuk reminds us, not in God's courtroom. God sees all and nothing slips by his gaze. 
Every wrong that has been mishandled in the courts of, of, in the human courts will be made right by our God. And so we can trust him. James 5, 7 puts it this way. Be patient. Stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. The judge is standing at the door. Church, there is a sense in which when we've been wronged, God's justice is a very comforting truth. And it should be. But God's justice is a double-edged sword. It can also be a terrifying reality. It can bring comfort and it can bring terror. Look at verse 6. And as we look at verse 6, notice the description of the Babylonians, the instrument of God to bring justice, the instrument of God to discipline his people. He says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded. They are fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. He's saying, listen, Babylon is a brutal military force. They don't come and ask for permission. They just take what they want. And if you try to stop them, they'll kill you. If you try to take them to court, they'll kill you, then they'll burn the courthouse down. They don't care about right and wrong as God declares right and wrong. They're so big, they're so powerful, they think they are God. They assume that right and wrong is what they say. That's what verse 7 means when it says that their justice goes out from themselves. They think right and wrong is what they say. Might is right. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture's or like eagles swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. He's saying, listen, they're coming. They're coming, and you can't outrun them. You can't hide from them. You can't negotiate with them. They are determined to do violence. Well, we've got a military, Judah might think. We've got a king. He says in verse 10, at kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. Babylon laughs at every fortress, and they pile up earth, and they take it. They sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. In verses 5 through 11, God reveals his plan to Habakkuk. It answers Habakkuk's question about the wickedness that he sees among God's people in God's house. And God's answer is, I'm not indifferent towards that. I see it, and I will discipline. I will judge. I will act. But what's astonishing is the instrument of judgment. God's plan is to use a wicked nation like Babylon. Now hold on. How can a holy God use a wicked nation like Babylon? That brings a whole whole separate set of difficulties for us. And I just want to say the tension of that question does not get resolved here by verse 11. We have to keep reading in Habakkuk, and we'll see how that tension gets resolved in the coming weeks. 
But for now, I think one of the questions that comes up when we, when we read a text like this is we, we look at the chaos of the past year, all the mess of 2020, and we might ask, okay, is, is 2020 God's judgment on America? And some leaders are certain it is. And some leaders promise that if we just turn around and obey God, America will grow in prominence again and prosperity will flourish. And certainly, I want to say, having righteous people in any society is good. It's a beneficial thing. Proverbs 14, verse 34 says this, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. But as we wrestle with what we, how we, we handle this text in light of today, we need to remember that, that God's word in Habakkuk has more to do with the church than with another nation like America. It's not that it says nothing, but the primary focus is the church, the people of God today. That's how we apply it. And so as we look at current events today, some will assume that America is God's promised land. But it's not. Hebrews 11 tells us that our country as the people of God is a heavenly one. And when Christ returns, the heavenly one will become the new heavens and the new earth. Real concrete land that we stand on, but that doesn't come until Jesus comes back. And so we should, yes, we should, as Americans, be grateful for our freedoms. And we can love our country. We can be patriotic. That's a good thing. But Christian, fundamentally, our, citizen, our citizenship is not on this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Christ is our king. And praise God that he's our king. First Peter reminds us over and over that this side of heaven, our identity is primarily exiles and strangers. It's not our home. We're not home yet. And so we need to remember that we're, we have more, listen, we have more in common with our Turkish, Chinese, Russian, or Iranian Christian brothers and sisters than we do our fellow Americans who don't know Jesus. And so we should work for the good of our nation. We should serve our country. Praise God for those of you who do. That's a good and noble thing. We should pray for our leaders. We're commanded to. But remember that nations on earth rise and fall as God sees fit. They come and go as God sees fit. Our ultimate hope is not in a politician, nor is it in a country. Our ultimate hope is Jesus and his church. That's where our hope rests. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And because of that, our hope is unshakable, church. Now listen, I understand. It's, it's normal, it's understandable for us in chaotic, painful, trying days to long for certainty. We as human beings want and desire a place to put our feet down when everything around us is chaos. I get that. That's good. And, and church, praise God that we have certainty. Praise God that we have certainty that we need in God's Word. God's Word, the Bible, is our rock to stand upon. What God has revealed, we stand upon. That's our certainty. In Habakkuk's scenario, what God revealed was what he was going to do with Babylon in his day. 
Verse 5, look, he says, see. Verse 6, behold what I'm doing. He's revealing his plan to Habakkuk. So Habakkuk knows certain things. But as we keep reading in Habakkuk, we will find that there are things that God hides from the prophet as well. There's going to be things that Habakkuk doesn't understand in his own wisdom. There are certain things that he's going to have to trust God with, which, by the way, is the central idea of Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Friends, in our longing for certainty, we need to be careful not to go beyond what the Scriptures reveal. See what God has revealed. Stand upon what God has revealed, but don't go beyond it. We should be cautious. We should be leery of leaders, Christian leaders even, who claim certainty about things that God has not spoken about. When God's word is silent, church, we need to be okay. We need to be comfortable with saying, I don't know. That's part of being human. God alone knows all things. Part of being human is not knowing all things, right? So, back to the question. Is the mess of 2020 God's judgment on America for specific sin? I don't know. I don't know. But that doesn't mean that God is silent about what he's doing right now. God is speaking. He has spoken, and he's speaking through his word today. He gives us a foundation, a rock to stand on in his word and what he's revealing to us. And 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus to be his word to us. He came first. Jesus came first to die in our place as our substitute for our sin and then to rise on the third day for our salvation. What's more, Jesus promised he's coming again. And when he comes again, he will make all things new. And when he comes again and sits on his throne as judge, he will right every wrong. And so for those who turn from their sin, for those who trust in Christ, he Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes on that day. And on that day, death will be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, or sin anymore. It will be paradise. You know why? Because God and sinner shall be reconciled. He will be our God and we shall be his people forever and ever. And he will be our joy. That is our hope. Habakkuk was concerned, rightly so. Judah, the people of God, the house of God, was filled with violence, verse 2. Lawlessness, verse 4. And idolatry, verse 3. But in response, God was raising up Babylon, who would come with violence, verse 9. Lawlessness, verse 7. And idolatry, verse 11. What Judah was guilty of was mirrored in his judgment. And I think part of what we're meant to see is an echo of Romans chapter 1 in this. Friends, if we persist in stiff-arming God and plugging our ears to what he's saying to us, his judgment is to eventually 
give us over to what we want. No, God, no, God, no, God, no. Okay, eventually, okay, fine. In that sense, God's warnings in the prophets like Habakkuk are his mercy. He's saying, stop, come back. I have, a good, I have good news for you if you come to me. But sadly, history will show that Judah refused to listen to God's merciful warnings. And by 586 B.C., they would be taken into exile in Babylon. God's warning would turn into judgment for them. 600 years after Habakkuk, the Apostle Paul will be sharing the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ in Acts 13. And in Acts 13, verse 41, he will quote Habakkuk 1, verse 5. And he'll use that as a warning, a warning that is for us today. Thankfully, the difference between what happened in Habakkuk's day and today is that for anyone, anyone who hears the warning of the gospel and trusts in Christ, it's not too late. The warning of Scripture turns into good news. It turns into salvation and hope and turns into eternal life. Praise God for that. Friends, one of the, one of the NFL teams my family has been cheering for this year is the Kansas City Chiefs. Sorry, uh, the Washington team fans, right? A month ago, they were playing the Las Vegas Raiders, and the game was a back-and-forth game the entire time. And in the fourth quarter, with one minute left and one minute and 15 seconds left in the clock, Kansas City was behind 31 to 28. Looked like the Raiders were going to win. But Patrick Mahomes, who's fun to watch, in the last minute, led his offense 75 yards down the field for a touchdown in the final seconds. It was awesome. Nerve-wracking, but awesome. All right. Now, imagine I recorded that game a month ago. And then today, I invited you all over to our house, and we're going to watch the game together. In the fourth quarter, we're watching the game together. Kansas City's losing. What would you say to me if you watched me get nervous? I'm pacing around the room, and I say, oh, shut it off. I can't handle it tomorrow. It's, it, it looks like Kansas City's going to lose. You've got to turn, turn it off. I'm, I'm, I'm too anxious. What would you say to me? Come on. Zach, you know how it ends. Calm down. Kansas City wins. Friends, you and I don't know everything that's going to happen between today and tomorrow. You and I don't know everything that's going to happen between today and the end. I don't know. We don't know what 2021 holds for us. But that's okay. Because of Jesus, God's word to us, we know how it ends. We know how it ends. Christ is God's plan revealed to us. And in him and in his promise to go with us in this coming year, he, we know that he will go with us, he will lead us, he will protect us, he will provide for us all through the year. That's how we face tomorrow with confidence. Because we know how it ends and we know we have a good shepherd who leads us. That's how we begin to trust God.
even when the world seems to be falling apart. Amen? Let's pray together.